be patient with us. Um, but it is great to see some new faces, uh, and uh, even though we're, we're missing some old faces this morning, um, it is fun to see the new faces. So I, I greet you. If, you. if I don't get a chance to talk to you, uh, I apologize, but I'll try and hang around afterwards and try and grab me if you're new, because I'd love to, to say hi to you if I didn't get a chance to. Uh, a few weeks ago, I came to the church, and there was a message on the answering machine. Uh, actually, I believe there was three messages from the same person. The first two messages filled up the machine, the, the full allotted time for the message, and the third one was, was, wasn't too short of that. Um, I, don't, I don't check the messages super regularly at the church, I confess, because they're mostly junk and salespeople. Uh, but I do check it. And in any event, the woman who called seemed desperately insistent to talk to a pastor. She needed prayer, and especially prayer for healing. And I thought about it, and I'll be honest with you, that there's a part of me that didn't want to call her back. Um, that, that's wrong in me, but I, I've developed a bit of a sixth sense about these sorts of pastoral calls over time. And, and maybe it's a little phrase, maybe it's a little tilt in the voice, or, or it's a, a particular insistence on one idea at the expense of a bunch of other ideas that are important. Whatever it is, like something will lead me... Uh, to get what's usually a pretty accurate read on some underlying issues. And I had a hint, just a hint, that this could be a doozy. Uh, but I, I, I called her. And I spoke to this woman on the phone for about 45 minutes or so. And, and, and while she would never get into specifics, she needed healing for some issue. And she was struggling with her finances. And she believed that a male, she was very particular about it being a male, pastor, could pray for her and give her full healing as well as financial relief. She had uh, apparently been hurt by one or more churches in her life, as it came out as we had conversation. Um, that I'm not sure what that amounted to. She wouldn't get into specifics on that. Um, and so the result was that she no longer attended church very much. But she did watch TV. And she would catch the TV preachers. And particularly, she was fond of one particular local minister uh, who encouraged viewers to find the churches where these sorts of miracles were done and that those were the only legitimate churches. Um, this is not a sermon on, on gifts of healing. I, I, I do believe that those gifts, gifts exist, but the, there's one relevant point of distinction between what I think the Bible teaches about those gifts and, and what this charlatan on TV was selling. And, and this woman had come to believe from watching these preachers that she could be healed simply by finding someone who had this gift and who would take time out to pray for her. And, and the, it was just sort of automatic in her mind. She was looking for a magician, and if she could find the right magician, everything would be well. And, and the problem is the Bible just never suggests that certain people can heal on demand just anyone they want, any way they want, on command. And, of course, the Bible does not teach that it's our prerogative in Christ to have material or financial windfalls. I was very willing to pray for this woman. I told her that, but I told her I would not demand that God heal her. I would ask God to heal her if it be his will. And that caused her quite a bit of consternation, actually. She was thrown for a little bit of a loop and asked, well, well, why wouldn't God heal me? She wanted to know, why wouldn't God heal her? 
Of course he would. She just needed to find the right person who could do it for her. And my heart was aching for this woman because she so desperately believed that she just needed to find that right uh, magician and her life would be full of rich blessings. And of course I would pray for her. But I wanted her to know two things before I did. I wanted her to know that we don't make demands of God. And I wanted her to understand that God has the right to not heal her. And that it might, in fact, be for her good. So I asked her if she had a Bible. She did. So I had her turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and, and read verses 1 through 10. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, in this passage, Paul describes, the Apostle Paul describes some infirmity, some malady, some, some difficulty he's having. Um, and it was apparently disruptive enough to his daily life that he prayed God would take it away. In fact, he says he prayed three times that God would take it away. And instead of taking it away, Jesus speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul concluded that this weakness or sickness or malady, whatever it was, he's not specific, was given by Jesus to keep him humble, to help him rely on Jesus' strength, to allow Jesus' power to shine through. And so Paul concludes the matter with, with some well-known words. I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I wish that scripture had clarified things for her. And I, and I wish I had that happy story to tell but she was so convinced by these false preachers that had taught her this lie that she could demand of God her healing from the right music, uh, magician, that she could not get over it. I don't want to be sick, she repeated to me many times over the course of our conversation. Not as a statement of fact, but as a statement of protest against the truth she was seeing in Scripture. She could not conceive of a God who would allow her to endure pain and sickness. And while my heart was breaking and desiring her to be well, I didn't want to promise her what only God can deliver. I didn't want her faith to crash against the rocks of lingering health issues if the magical incantation had no effect. So I prayed for her earnestly that God would make her well if he'd be willing. And when I said goodbye, I was, I was just crushed. And, and I'll be honest, I was angry. I was angry and I was sad that she was so joyless and that this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, it should bring us joy beyond all our external circumstances. And this truth was shut up out of her reach because of some charlatans. And it made me angry. Over and against this notion that suffering is something that God would never want us to put up with is James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. In this passage, James makes the argument that life's challenges are, create, are crafted to make you like Christ. Life's challenges are crafted to make you like Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to unpack that 
idea by looking at what happens to you, what happens in you, and, and what you need to do. But, but before we get there, we need to take a step back and look at verse 1, the introduction to this book, because it sets the stage for this passage and this book and, and colors how we interpret it. This is our, our first message in a, a series entitled James, the call to wholeness. And obviously we're looking at the book of James and we see in verse 1 that this book was written by a guy named James, hence James. Great. Uh, like much of the New Testament, this is a letter. And the opening lines, as was ancient style, uh, tell us the to and the from. And those details help us to put the letter in a context and better understand what concerns might be prompting the letter. After all, this isn't an email. A letter like this would have taken weeks or months to deliver. And so a writer wasn't going to waste papyrus and ink to say, dude, did you catch the game last night? And then, you know, wait, you know, seven weeks to get a response. What he puts down is important. So never skip these introductions when you're reading the Bible and, and you see these letters. Uh, don't skip those introductions because they give you some really important insights into the contents that follow. This letter is uh, from James, and James refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and James is a common name in the Jewish world, as it is uh, an English corruption of the Hebrew name Jacob. But ancient Christian tradition holds that this particular James was James, the brother of Jesus, who became an early leader in the church in Jerusalem. And, and so there's many good reasons to think this tradition is true. There's no good reasons to abandon it. Um, but it's striking that he identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him during much, if not all, of his earthly ministry. The Apostle John records, us, records that fact for us. But I have a feeling that a man raising from the dead has a way of challenging one's perspective on things. Whatever the precise moment or event that turned James' stony, unbelieving heart to one that pumped with a vigorous new life of faith, he now had an utterly new relationship with the man he once knew as Jesus bar Joseph of Nazareth. For James, Jesus was no longer an older brother, but the Lord. James was no longer a younger brother, but a slave. Saving faith completely changes your outlook and your stance on who Jesus Christ is. And James was no exception. He could have boasted of his status or his, his position or told stories of what it was like to grow up with big brother Jesus. But he didn't do that. He saw himself the way every Christian is called to see himself, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what your background, you do not know Jesus until you see your disposition is the same as James. But what about the, the recipients? To whom does, does James write? Well, it says he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which might not be very intuitive to most of us 21st century Americans. The, the 12 tribes refers to the Israelites, and we know he's writing to Christians, so we get the sense that this is early, before there were a lot of non-Jewish Christians. 
It also suggests that James thought of Jesus' followers as the, the faithful continuation of Israel. They had accepted Israel's Messiah. They were the faithful ones. So there were Jews that had accepted the Messiah who had come, Jesus, and there were Jews that had rejected the Messiah who came. There was the faithful Israel and there was unfaithful Israel. But he's, he's writing specifically to those Jewish Christians in the dispersion. Or if you've got another translation, you might see the diaspora. Uh, and the diaspora was basically all the regions of the world to which Jews had taken up residence outside of Palestine, outside of Judea. Particularly in Asia, Syria, Turkey, things like that. And of course, many of these Jews were not away from Judea by choice, but by force. And so it's very possible that they're facing any number of economic hardships as well. And this will come out in several points in the letter, not insignificantly in verses 2 through 4. So with a simple greetings, James digs in, and, and so will we. So let's recall, the, the big idea really of this message is that life's challenges are crafted to make you like Christ. And we're going to look at this by examining um, what happens to you, what happens in you, and what you need to do. James begins, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. These trials of various kinds is on one level intuitive to us. We understand that life is about trials. Stuff happens. I don't know that I've ever met a single person, no matter how rich, no matter how popular, no matter how powerful, that hasn't on some level struggled with difficulties and trials in their life. They're different. Um, some might be harder, some might be easier. I don't know how to judge what that's like from another person's perspective, but I know that all people go through trials. And James says that they know that the testing of their faith produces steadfastness. And so, look here, he's connecting the idea of these trials of life to being testings. And so what happens to you in life, what happens to me in life, what happens to us, is that yes, we endure trials, we endure times of difficulty, and James wants to point out that these are actually times of testing. And it's interesting that he says, you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How many times how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you were, were saved by praying a prayer? You became a Christian because someone told you the gospel and, and said, you know, you pray this prayer and then you're a Christian. And how many of you were, were assured that if you prayed a prayer like that, you would go to heaven and, and all would be good? My guess is that's a, that's a common experience for many of us. And it, and it comes from a right place. It comes from a right spirit. It's not entirely wrong. But it can be a little bit misleading. Uh, on, by contrast, um, uh, a pastor out in D.C. named Mark Dever, he takes a little bit different tact. When he is with a recent convert, a new convert, or if he leads somebody 
uh, along the path that, that has them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He tells them that time will tell whether they are a true Christian or not. Time will tell. Which is to say they'll be tested. I don't think that's the way we usually talk in America today. Unfortunately, we like to give people grand assurances and grand promises. It's just sort of the American way. Um, but I think that that's a little bit more honest. Yes, if you have true faith, you have nothing to worry about. You, you, you're saved. You're, you're going to be with Jesus forever in heaven. And if you exercise that faith through praying a prayer, that's, that's fine. There, there's nothing um, against Scripture in that. But, who knows whether that faith is sincere or not, whether it's real, whether it endures the testing. God alone knows that fact. And so, time will tell. The author of Hebrews says that we know we have come to know Jesus Christ if we endure to the end. In other words, the proof positive that we have come to have true faith in Jesus Christ is that we never give up. The fact that God started a work in you at one point in time that will inevitably reach completion and that product, that, that completion in you is the proof positive that you were in Jesus to begin with. And, and so when, when we talk about these, these trials of various kinds which are really tests Again, it, there's, a, there's a part of our American Christian culture that just doesn't want to accept that. And you can turn on any number of, of television uh, preachers and, and a number of, of guys around this city and every city that I know who will tell you that God only wants good things for you and great things for you and he wants you to be prosperous and he wants you to be well and he wants you to be financially successful and, and, and all this baloney, and, and James here takes as a, an obvious truism of life that Christians will go through trials, and those trials are tests. And he can appeal to all these Christians he's writing to, Christians he's never met before, because they live hundreds of miles away from him in a time when that's a big deal. He doesn't even address any of them by name. But he knows that they know that these are tests. And so I wonder if our discipleship of young Christians, not young in age, but young in years serving the Lord, is kind of poor. Because how often do we talk to young Christians about the fact that they are going to be tested in their faith, that they are going to endure trials? Now, he's not specific here. In fact, he says trials of many kinds. For his original readers, it's, it's probably likely that they're facing some economic hardships. There's th things that come out in the letter that we'll see in subsequent weeks that suggest that many of these Jewish Christians happen to be poor. And there's a lot of different things going on in the Roman Empire at this time that could account for that. But it seems like a lot of them are poor. There's also a really good chance that some of them have faced or are facing persecution. There's a number of things going on at this time. It's probably not too long after the stoning of Stephen and the, the martyrdom that breaks out uh, across Judea and Palestine, led by a rabbi named Saul, Paul, who goes off leading uh, Christians to jail and, and having them executed. So there's a lot of forces going on here that, that probably create the types of trials they might be 
undergoing. But James was not specific. You face trials of many kinds. I know a lot of you guys, and I know myself, and I know the trials that I go through. I know some of the trials that you guys go through. I know that there's economic hardships in this room. I know that there are psychological hardships there. I know that there are, you know, from time to time you've got interpersonal conflict that is dragging you down. You've got problems at work. You've got idiot bosses, you know, and you've got all kinds of trials that you're enduring. And, and those things are pressuring you to walk off the straight and narrow road of faith. James sees them for what they are. They are tests. The Greek idea of a, a test here um, is, is really the idea of, of taking a precious metal like gold and, and, and passing it through the fire so that all the impurities are burned up, melted off, and what, what is revealed at the end is pure gold. The word James uses here refers to the, the active process of going through that. So we're, we're, we're throwing what James is assuming is a precious commodity in these Christians. He assumes that they have this precious commodity, and we're passing it through the fires to refine it and purify it. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing for what happens next. So, so James says, what's, what's happening to you is that you're undergoing trials, yes, but those trials are tests. But what happens in you is that these tests produce steadfastness. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We we might be inclined to take steadfastness as a kind of a bland quality. It's a little stale, dull, unexciting. But I think that would be incorrect. In fact, the word could have something of a military sense, such that one author describes its range of meaning to cover courageous, active resistance to hostile attack. It is the soldier who, under heavy fire, does not give up his ground, does not flee, does not surrender, but perseveres and fights on. When the Jews picked up this word from the Greeks, it took a nuance of stealing oneself, knowing that God is the ultimate deliverer. And both senses are probably relevant in the present context. The Christian recognizes that the trials of life that could cause us to fall must not be met passively. And they must not be met recklessly. Our strong defense, our armor, I love Paul's imagery in Ephesians chapter 6, our, our strong defense, the armor of God, are the benefits incurred by our relationship with God. The peace and righteousness and hope of the gospel. And our offense, because we must have an offense, is God's word by which we sharpen our souls, we, we remove the, the dying sin nature and combat the lies that, that threaten us. I, I think, I remember reading when I was young this, this story of a, I think of a father and son. I think it was in a Reader's Digest. Um, my mom always subscribed to that, so it would be my bathroom reading material as a kid. And uh, I think it was a father and a son had gone on this, this uh, camping trip and then they got snowed in and 
and they get frostbite really severely on their, uh, their feet. And they realize that, or at least the father realizes, that if they don't do something about that frostbite, it is going to destroy them. The tissue is dead. It, it, it's going to poison them and kill them. And so they take out their knives and they remove the part of their feet that is so frostbitten that it's dead and threatens to kill them. So we do with the word of God. We have to actively be removing the parts of us that are dead and dying because of sin and cut them out that they don't poison the rest of us. That's what steadfastness is. Steadfastness is, a, is, a, is an active and intentional resistance and ability to stand up straight. And it gets built up over time just as, you know, if you start going to the gym and you, you, you can't lift a whole lot of weight. Um, sometimes my, my gym will have us carry plates over our head and walk, you know, hundreds of meters at a time with, with plates over our head. And in, as you do that, your arms want to weaken, your shoulders want to weaken, but over time, you can hold up more and more weight under more and more tests. So it is with steadfastness. Do you know the story of Polycarp? Polycarp was a, a, an early Christian leader. He was a pastor in Smyrna, which is a, was a prominent city on the western coast of Turkey. In the mid-second century, probably between 155 and, and 165. He was arrested and he was taken before the proconsul. And not just the proconsul, but a stadium full of spectators. Renounce Christ, burn incense to the emperor. That's all that was asked for him. That he could save his life. Polycarp demurred. The proconsul charged him to say, away with the atheists. In Roman parlance, uh, an atheist was one who disavowed the Roman gods. And so a Christian in this sense was an atheist, someone who didn't accept the Roman gods. But Polycarp, maybe sort of playing on the pun, waved maybe dismissively at the crowd of pagans around him and said, away with the atheists. That didn't settle things for the proconsul, clearly. And so the story continues. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee, reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? The proconsul again urged him, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly declaring what I am. I am a Christian, and if you so desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and you shall hear. Hereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts, and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, replied Polycarp. For repentance with us 
is a wicked thing if it is to be changed from the better to the worse, but a good thing if it is to be changed from evil to good. I will tame thee with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise wild beasts, unless you repent. Then said Polycarp, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. The proconsul sent the herald to proclaim thrice in the middle of the stadium, Polycarp hath professed himself a Christian, which words were no sooner spoken. But the whole multitude, both of Gentiles and Jews, dwelling in Smyrna, with outrageous fury, shout aloud, This is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians, and the subverter of our gods, who hath taught many not to sacrifice, nor adore. They now called on Philip, the Asiarch, to let loose a lion against Polycarp, but he refused, alleging that he had closed his exhibition. They then unanimously shouted that he should be burnt alive, for his vision must needs be accomplished. The people immediately gathered wood and other dry matter from their workshops and baths in which service the Jews with their, were particularly forward to help. When they, when they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, leave me as I am. For he who giveth me strength to sustain the fire will enable me also, without the securing me with nails, to remain without flinching in the pile upon which they bound him without nailing him. So he said, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the numbers of martyrs. As soon as he had uttered the word amen, the officers lighted the fire. The flame forming the appearance of an arch as a sail of a vessel filled with wind surrounded as with a, ball, as with a wall the body of the martyr which was in the midst, not as burning flesh, but as gold and silver refining in the furnace. We received also in our nostrils such a fragrance as proceeds from frankincense or some other precious perfume. The ancient story goes on to record that the Romans, to the Romans' chagrin, Polycarp did not go up in flames, and they were forced to impale him to finally kill him. I believe Polycarp had steadfastness. Steadfastness does not happen magically, of course. It comes through enduring and standing up under the trials of life with a holy courage, a Christian courage. This isn't hardening ourselves to life and becoming cold and, and becoming callous to life. This is becoming strong and resolute and brave and willing to stand up against temptations and tests of our faith, things that would push us to do what's wrong, to do what would be evil in the sight of our Lord. And the more we're tested, the stronger we become to resist those things. So then what should we do? Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some translations uh, hide the, the, the command here in verse 4, not, not intentionally, just in the way they translate it, but the ESV is pretty good, and let steadfastness have its full effect. There's, there's a, an implicit command here, not even 
implicit, explicit command here that this just doesn't happen on its own, that we must allow the steadfastness to have its full effect, or the Greek here is its perfect work. There's actually a, a word play here, and let steadfastness have perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a little bit of a word play going on between two forms of the word perfect and, and the different, slightly different definitions that it can have in different contexts. But it's interesting that we have to respond to these trials and respond to the steadfastness that's being up in us in a way that we allow it to reform us and shape us. We do that by faith. So we're not entirely passive in that process either. We have to allow steadfastness, and this, this is, I guess we could say that this is one way you can diagnose a, a, a true Christian from a, a claimant who knows nothing of the power of Christ's grace. And there are many of those. Is do they let steadfastness have its work? In other words, does does the, their, their dealings with this world, does it, does it harden them and make them callous and make them angry and bitter? Or does it change them so as to make them perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? That is, that's a really strong you know, compendium of adjectives there. But the goal of the difficulties of this life is to purify that, that, that precious metal so much, to, to take away so much of the dross that what's left is perfect. It's complete. Some translations might say mature. Lacking in nothing. The goal, you see, is to become like Jesus Christ. Christ. I understand that um, these great sculptors of old, I assume they're still great sculptors today, we just don't talk about them as much, you know, like a Michelangelo, you know, they, they would sculpt everything from a, a, a giant single block of stone or marble. You know, and, and I know Philip was talking a, a couple weeks ago about seeing the David in, in uh, what is it, in Rome or Florence? Um, you know, and it's carved out of a single block of stone. And, and you can imagine that with, with every, you know, act of chiseling, with every hammer strike that Michelangelo took to that block, it slowly, gradually became more and more like the image he had in his head of what it was going to be. If you'd seen it a week before he finished, it would have looked like a man. But it wouldn't have looked like the man that he was going for. If you'd seen it four weeks before, it might have looked like a amorphous blob. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but you, you get the idea. It was a slow and gradual chiseling of the figure to make it more. And so in the same way, we Christians are being gradually chipped away at and, and, and gradually sort of hammered away at. And sometimes that hurts a little bit sometimes that's difficult but the goal of it is to make us look like the image of our savior jesus christ 
so that on the day that we stand in his presence face to face, we will be fully like him. So here, it's, it's not a metaphorical sense of perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is the trajectory that he wants Christians to go on. And so much the way you can tell um, uh, is something a sculpture or is something just a stone. You know how you know the difference between a sculpture and a stone is one is slowly changing over time to look like the ideal of the artist. So a, a, a sculptor could grab a couple stones from the quarry and, and, and one he could work on and one he could decide he doesn't want to work on. And, and the one he's working on slowly becomes like the thing that he has in his mind that it's going to become. Whether it's a giraffe or whether it's a, 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 the David or whether, I don't know, what they, what, you can sculpt anything, right? But it's slowly becoming that. And the other one just sits there and doesn't change. Or if it changes, it's eroded by the forces of this world and slowly obliterated into nothing. That's the difference between a piece of art and a stone, even before you see the finished project. So too, when we, we look at our lives as, as Christians and, and when we work with other Christians and we, we are trying to encourage other Christians and shape other Christians and, and we're working in, in discipling relationships where we're building into others' lives and they're building into our lives, one of the evidences of a life that has encountered Jesus Christ, like James had, that moves from seeing him as Jesus bar Joseph to Jesus, son of the living God, savior of the world, is that they are being constantly chipped away at to look more like Jesus. If you don't see that, you might start to wonder, is it just a block of stone? And so we have this big idea that the trials and life's challenges are crafted to make you like Christ. But there's something else in this passage that I've kind of deliberately held back. We could say life's challenges are crafted to make you like Christ. And so therefore rejoice. First line, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. This sounds absurd. This sounds ridiculous to those who do not know Jesus Christ. That those people, though, who, who are maybe on the worst day of their life, who are enduring the greatest hardships of their life, that are facing the blackest moments of their life, they lift up their hands in praise and joy of God. It's incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense. But if we know that the things that we're enduring are there to make us like our Savior, 
why wouldn't we rejoice? Why wouldn't we be full of joy? Why wouldn't we be so overwhelmed by the goodness of our God? And when James says, count it all joy, my brothers, I don't believe he's saying that the only emotion that we're supposed to have is joy. You know, Christians feel pain, we feel sadness, we feel weakness, and those things are legitimate and we feel them. But even amidst those things, we can still have joy. We have joy with our sadness. We have joy with our anger, when our anger is rightly directed. We have joy in our pain, our physical pain, our mental pain. Because we know that there's something greater that all of this is pushing us toward. And so, maybe even more than this kind of steadfastness, maybe even more than seeing the thing being chiseled away, you see somebody on the darkest day of their life rejoicing in God, their Savior, and you know that something has transformed them on the most deep level of their soul. It's an unmistakable sign that James, the, the young child who probably annoyed his big brother Jesus and, and, and mocked him and and just bugged him the way little brothers tend to do, now says, I am his slave. He was my brother, but now he's my Lord. And I'm becoming like him. So I rejoice. Where is your joy? It's so easy to have joy when, when you get a promotion, when you get a bonus, when you get a raise. It's so easy to have joy when you jump into a new relationship or you just get married. You, you know, it's so easy to have joy uh, when, you, when you hit retirement and, you know, and all the, the things are lined up so that it's all comfortable and you can just do whatever you want. It's, it's, it's joy those times. You know, it's, it's joy when the Cubs win the World Series. I'm sorry. Um, you guys know I'm from Illinois. Um, it's joy when the Browns finally do it. Um, but it's much more difficult and it's much more meaningful than when your joy transcends this world and your joy is rested on, on bigger and better promises so that when the promotion doesn't go through, worse, you get fired. When the stock market crashes and you lose your retirement savings, when uh, you lose a spouse, when you lose a child, when you lose a friend. When you're injured, when you're hurting, when you're depressed. The medicines aren't working quite right. And yet, you have joy. That is unique. That is unmistakable. Everyone rejoices when things are well. Christians rejoice even when things aren't well. Because they know that even those things that seem to be not well are pushing them to a much better reality. 
so let's rejoice in our trials and let's pray. Father God in heaven, we confess that too often we turn our backs on you in our trials and in our tribulations and our difficulties. We get angry at you. We get mad at you. We know this is not from Christ. May we be people who reflect the goodness and greatness of your grace poured out on the cross of Calvary. When your son bled and died to pay for our sins that we might have eternal life with him by faith. And so we rejoice in even our greatest struggles because we know you are good through them. I pray that we would not be led astray by false promises, that we would not be weak, but be steadfast. That in our weakness, we would grab the power that is available by your son, Jesus, so that by his strength, we stand strong. And I pray, God, that if there be those here that do not know this grace or have closed their hearts to it for so long that you would plague them with wondering and questioning about why this joy is missing from their lives and I pray God that it would be to their salvation. It's in the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Go stand and continue to worship in song.